Good morning. I'm Alicia. I'm going to be reading the text for this morning's message. Um, so you can open up your Bibles or your apps and follow along in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verses 26 through 40. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he can acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Thank you, Alicia. Um, today we, um, we conclude our four-week series covering chapter 13 and 14 of uh, 1 Corinthians in a series called Spillover. Um, it's a letter written, uh, Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. I'm like a little bit uh, caught up because of that video. I don't know, it makes me emotional to think that we can be a part of empowering women across the world. So um, I'm a little slow to get started here. I apologize for that. Um, the, uh, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a church in Corinth, and they're responding. And then this is arguably actually the second letter that Paul has written. Uh, the first one is lost to us, um, but we call this 1 Corinthians. And so you'll hear me refer to um, Paul or the Apostle Paul throughout the message this morning. I just want to let you know who it is that I'm talking about. And I figured, you know what, as we were working things out as a... Um, preaching team, we were like, you know, wouldn't it be amazing, as, as a lead team, we were saying, wouldn't it be amazing to empower women, to invest in women's empowerment on Mother's Day? And then the preaching team was like, yeah, and let's talk about a text that has to do with women being silent in church. <laughs> wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't that be incredible? Uh, here's the deal. Unfortunately, this text is, um, is kind of misused and used as a a form of uh, abuse, I think, in a lot of ways. And so hopefully we're going to untangle that and uh, we're going to put it in its proper context this morning. So don't, don't be hung up on that this morning. I'm sure there's some of you that are like, I wonder what he's going to do with this. <laughs> I have no idea. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, there's, there's moments where I've wondered what in the world is going on in the world. One of them in particular 
I was a, a child, and we were in a department store. It was around Christmas time, and uh, I was with, I can't remember which parent I was with, if it was with my mother or my father. I believe it was my mother, and, uh, and I, I believe my sisters were with us, but we were, um, we were walking into this department store, and there was this table, there was this big commotion, and there were a bunch of adults yelling, and there were some kids, and they were frustrated, and we were thinking, what in the world is happening? There was this empty table, and there was a sign on the table uh, that that the sign was for Cabbage Patch Kids, right? You guys remember that? Cabbage Patch Dolls? If you're not old enough to remember that, you're awesome. Uh, but for some of us, we have this burden or this blemish on our life called Cabbage Patch Kids. Uh, in either case, um, they were devastated because it, there was like, it was coming into the holidays and they had just run out of their Cabbage Patch Kids. And so all the parents were in uproar. They were yelling and screaming. And there's this guy there that's trying to calm them down and say, listen, I'm going to go in back. I'm going to get more. It's fine. We have more. They're like, you have more? Yes, yes. So everyone's waiting. And so you can kind of feel this almost palatable tension uh, in the room. And I was young enough to not really care except to know that something was happening. And so uh, they're going, uh, he leaves. And as, as he's leaving, we're kind of going around them and we're watching and we're trying to make it past people. And it's a crowd of people. And so as we're making it past them, uh, this gentleman comes back. He comes back with a single cabbage patch doll and he puts it on the table and kind of slides it out into the center of the table. And there's this moment of like complete confusion. Like everyone's looking around like, what's that? And then someone kind of leans towards it and someone else leans towards it. And he's like, I'm sorry, that's actually the last one. And it was on like Donkey Kong. Like all of a sudden grown men and women start diving for this box. They're shoving each other. They're trampling one another. It was the first time I had ever experienced like the truth of American greed in like full out function. As a kid, I was like, what is happening? Complete chaos they tore that box apart. Not only did they tear the box apart, there were women screaming. There were guys crying because they had gotten injured, some just out of disparity that they had let their child down. And this Cabbage Patch doll was destroyed. They grabbed a hold of different parts of it and literally tore it from limb to limb, which as a child, I think I was more scarred from that than anything else. I was like, look, they both have, oh my gosh, there goes an arm. There's a leg. What? God, why? You know, stuffing flying everywhere. They're tearing it off. Like I have a hand. I'm like, how do you even pay for that? But the question I want to ask you this morning and what I want us to consider as we go through the text is why does confusion so quickly descend into chaos? confusion, this moment of confusion, all of a sudden becomes all out chaos. I want to submit to you that although we say we want peace and order in our lives, what we really mean is we want peace and order the way we define it. Basically, what we're saying is, I want to get what I want. We all define peace and order differently, right? For some of you, it's complete silence. And for those of you that define uh, peace and order as silence, you think that's actually the only option. You're like, wait, you can receive peace another way? I don't understand. Like, by definition, peace is everyone shut their mouth. Mommy needs a little alone time, right? <laughs> Happy Mother's Day. 
we've bound and gagged the children. <laughs> like, that's my gift to Meredith this, this Mother's Day, all the children. <laughs> that is a joke for those of you that are listening. Yeah. But it's like, it, for others of us in this room, the idea of peace is our entire family crowding around us and being loud and rambunctious. And for those of you that like silence, you're like, those people are demonic. Right? But, but there's people in this room that, that are like, no, like that's my idea of peace and order is chaos. Like when everybody jumps around and they're all like, yay, and they're crawling all over me like best Mother's Day ever. And you're like, wow, you need therapy, right? For others of us, we would define peace and order as just a nap. Like just let me sleep. Let me sleep. So we all define peace and order differently. And so when we talk about this idea of peace and order, what we really mean is peace and order the way we want it, the way we want it. As humans, whether we're Christian or not, and I realize that there's a mixture in the room today, those that would profess Christ as, as their Lord and leader and others that aren't quite so sure yet, and that's fine. But when we're faced with confusion as humans, we engage it according to our preference. And in the process, we create a divide. Those that agree with us and those that don't, right? I could do it easily this morning by simply asking your preference about certain things, which I won't do because it'll be <laughs> so distracting. When I thought of some of the ways that I could do that, I probably would struggle to regain the room <laughs> because it, there's just, it's that easy to create a divide where there's people on the other side like, what? You're kidding. I used to like you. <laughs> Depending on the topic at hand, it can get intense quickly, right? People draw conclusions and chaos ensues. Why? It's because even with good intentions, if personal preference trumps public order, then chaos and division will always result. Let me say it again, because it's, it's rather simple, but it's also kind of profound if you can track with it. It's as simple as this. If personal preference, if what we want individually is more important than public order, then chaos and division will always be the result. And for some reason, that ends up on social media, and we mindlessly watch it entertained, right? Like, oh my gosh, look at that. They flipped a car over. I didn't realize the lady had that much strength, but she's angry, you know? We don't like this idea as Americans because we're individuals and we enjoy our individual rights and our individual freedoms. That's not necessarily a bad thing, but if we're right, we don't want to concede simply in the name of order. In fact, sometimes we reward those that decide not to be silent. We're inspired by them, their willingness to go against the tide. And so it's an interesting dynamic that we have really in our world today, but at the end of the day, when we function as individuals, we bring division. You might say, you know what? I'm not that type of person. I don't actually want to speak up. Even if I'm right, I'd rather be silent because I want order that much. And it's not really that you want peace and order, you just don't like conflict. And so as a result, you'll remain silent, but there's still conflict happening within you because you know you're right or you think you are, 
right? And so inside you'll choose to be silent, but you're not really creating an environment that isn't divided because you still have your opinion. And if someone were to speak up on your side, you'd root for them, right? And so no matter what, at our core, we still have an opinion. We still believe we're right. So whether you remain silent or you speak out, we do things because we want to do them, not always in the name of order. Unless, unless the goal isn't to be right, but rather the goal is to build others up. You hate that idea, right? Like, wait a second. So we just, we just be quiet? We just be quiet when, in order to build other people up? Like, what if we're right? Like, that doesn't sound like Jesus talk. Like, like Jesus was right, and so he said things, and, and we should be right. Like, shouldn't we be like, belligerent, annoying Christians? Like, isn't that what God calls us to be? (laughs) I think we have to deal with this tension and there's extremes across the the board, if you will. There's the one side that says, wait, so then the the other option is to remain silent. So we, we just remain silent as wrong is being done in the world. Like, so God calls us just to be sort of like wimps that remain silent in the midst of, of wrong being done. And then the other side is like, no, I'll, I won't be silent for anything. I'm going to speak the truth and you're going to deal with it, right? There's these extremes and all along the while, there's this tension. And I want you to remain in that tension as we go throughout the message this morning. I don't want to resolve that just quite yet. I want you to consider what in the world is Claude talking about? Because... I want truth tellers and rule followers and everybody in between to be held in tension for a moment as we unpack what Paul is really addressing because he's addressing disorder. It's the issue of the church at Corinth. They functioned as independent individuals rather than a collaborative parts of the same body. And so in verse 26, it actually says, it says, what then brothers When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all these things be done for building up. I'm not going to re-unpack the the tongues and uh, prophecy as I did last week. If you weren't here, feel free to check out the podcast. But this morning, we're going to kind of build on top of that and, and let you know that this morning, it's not a command for an order of service, like as far as this should happen and then this should happen and then this should happen, but rather it's it's an awareness that all Christ followers have the capacity to contribute. And as a result, we should all be edified. We should be built up. You see, the Corinthians, as we've discussed, were enamored by spirituality to the point that they elevated self over others, the individual as more important than the group. They even blamed God for their divisive spirituality. It's not my fault. It's the Lord. I'm just going to tell you the way it is. And so Paul clarifies this because it was kind of an abusive tool. And I think it's an abusive tool that's sometimes used in Christendom today. And so I think it's important that we clarify out of verse 32 and the first part of verse 33. It says this, it says, and the spirit of prophets are subject to, to prophets 
For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Peace. Basically, what Paul's saying is, you're responsible for your actions. You have control over your spirituality. This was like a lifeline to me when I was growing up. I grew up in an environment, quite honestly, where at times people in the name of spirituality did some pretty edgy things, some abusive things, some confusing things like, you know, this is, this is the Lord, so you're just going to deal with it. And they'd use it for moments of correction and moments of awkward over-spirituality that was confusing to me. And honestly, I was kind of scared by it at times. I was scared of the fact that spirituality might be outside of our control. And so I love that, that Paul clarifies, like, listen, the prophets, the prophecies are subject to the prophets. You can control yourself. You can function in a way that reflects God as a God of peace and a God of order, not a God of chaos and confusion, not a God of divisiveness. Some of us have suffered at the hands of people that have misrepresented God, whether it's an over-spirituality or just someone that uh, proclaims Christ and are just really wicked people. No one like that here. Never happens. <laughs> but I think you all know what I mean. We've experienced that. I think it's sad. I think it's sad because it misrepresents the heart of God. There's people that say, listen, if that's Christianity, I want nothing to do with it. They're more miserable than the people that, that are atheists. And you're like, well... They're misrepresenting God. And so I want to say to you, if, if you struggle with that this morning, or if you have um, skepticism towards the things of God because of what you've seen or experienced, I want to challenge you to not allow the misrepresentation of God to cripple what God has for you, or you'll remain other people's victim. You'll remain their victim if you allow them to have authority in your life. God is a God of peace a God of peace. He's powerful. And there are moments of amazing God-powered moments. But it's not confusion. He's a God of order. So hear me now. People are allowed to say things you don't like. Because <laughs> you can take the extreme and you can be like, that's right. That person offended me. It wasn't God at all. <laughs> God can, I mean, God, people can say things and God can say whatever he wants, but people can say things that you don't like. That's okay. We need truth in order to find peace. Isn't that interesting? That, that truth that confronts our sense of stability, our sense of peace, will actually lead to true peace. We live in a world that says truth is relative. But the reality is, truth is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so Jesus is truth. There's nothing relative about that. I'm going to unpack that a little bit more because I know that feels kind of like a straw man that I just knocked down. Oh, truth's not relative. Boop, you know, I'm going to come back to it. But before I do, I'm going to unpack for a second the verse that got all of your attention in the room. Verses 34 and 35 says this, the women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission 
As the law also says, if there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. You need to understand this verse in context and realize that Paul said something in the direct opposition of what the typical conclusion of this text is just chapters earlier. So in chapters 11, verses 2 through 16, he talks about how women are supposed to pray in public and prophesy in public. And prophecy, we learned last week, is also preaching. And so literally, Paul gives explanation as to how women have to be cautious in how they represent themselves when they pray publicly and when they preach publicly. In chapter 11, if you want, you can go back to that message. We actually preached on it. We talked about the the contextual reality of of that entire passage. So is Paul contradicting himself now? Is he like, hey, this is, this is how women should speak and pray in public. And by the way, they should also keep their mouths shut. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Why would he contradict himself? He's not. And so if we consider this in context, there's something that we have to understand. There's something that we have to understand as far as the dynamic of what church even looked like in that day and age. So one of the things that would Uh, happen typical in that culture is that women would sit on one side of the room and men would sit on the other side of the room. And so they would never sit together. Spouses wouldn't sit together. They would sit on the opposite sides of the room. And so it's important to understand because after consulting a lot of commentaries and a lot of different um, historical uh, books, there's actually one written by Witherington, uh, a book called Women in the Earliest Churches. And summarized a lot of what the commentators were alluding to as, a, as one of the interpretations of this text. He states this. He says, if women were, and he puts in quotes, laying down the law or judging their husband's prophecy by leading questions, worship might become a family feud. And so there's, there's something that you have to understand within their society. Within their society, churches would be a safe place uh, for women to speak up, but it would not build up the group as a whole if they questioned their husbands directly while they were prophesying. So if you can imagine, it's in the early church, uh, the room is divided, women on one side, men on the other, and they're taking turns prophesying. They're taking turns preaching, okay? No more than three. And so a a gentleman would come up and and proclaim the things of God. And if you can imagine... uh, Typical is that they would ask questions. So as he's speaking, someone would ask a question and he would expound on that and ask another question and he would expound on that. And so the conversation would go on. You can imagine in today's culture, it would be very similar in the sense that if I was up here preaching and I was like, listen, men, you need to love your wives. And all of a sudden Meredith was like, that'd be nice. (laughs) And I was like, one more time. She'd be like, yeah, I have a question for you. Uh, Is it very loving for you to tickle me when I've said very clearly that I hate it from the moment that we met and now after 21 years of marriage nearly, you still tickle me and are entertained by it? I'd be like, shut your mouth in church, woman. No, (laughs) like if she was asking questions about what it is that I was stating that was true, it would actually devalue the truth and it would cause disorder in the room. That's what Paul is addressing right here. He's saying, listen, don't question your husbands in public when they're proclaiming truth. There's no reason to bring that tension into the church. It's confusing to the people that might be sitting there like, wait a second, so, so then we shouldn't respect our wives because it's pretty clear that that dude's not based on what she asked. And there would be this sense of confusion. And also in that culture, 
there would be a sense of tension in the room to the outsider because they simply weren't a culture that allowed women to question men in public. We're talking about a culture where grown men at 30 years old were married to women that were 14. It was the culture. That a woman couldn't divorce a man, but that a man could tell a woman, I'm done with you, you're divorced, leave my home. That's the culture they lived in. And so the idea that someone is communicating truth in front of a room and all of a sudden their spouse is questioning what they're saying would literally cause chaos. There would be a rift. It would be a misrepresentation of order. So that's the direct tension. But even indirectly, by publicly disagreeing with something that had been agreed with. And so I'll explain that a little bit too. One of the things that would happen in this culture is that at times, with the separation or the divide, prior to the beginning of the service, the men would talk about what's going to be talked about. And the women would be talking about what's going to be talked about. And so as the men are talking about it, one of the men would say, yeah, I'm thinking about saying this, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I think that would be great. They would be in agreement. And then all of a sudden someone would be communicating that and their spouse would disagree with what their husband just agreed with. And there would be tension in the room because in their culture, a spouse couldn't, dis a female spouse couldn't disagree with a man. And so Paul is talking about navigating the tension of the reality of the culture you live in in order to not misrepresent who God is. Basically, public worship should not be an extension of the tensions at home, right? Who wouldn't agree with that? In the same way, husbands should respect their wives. That says that in scripture. So Paul is saying wives should respect their husbands by remaining silent unless they are personally the ones praying or prophesying. So women shouldn't be silent in church. They should be silent when their husband is speaking as to ensure that there's order remaining in the church, that chaos doesn't ensue. Basically, love your spouse enough to question them at home in private <laughs> and love others enough to remain silent so that the whole group can be built up. You see, peace and order are an outworking of love. Peace and order are an outworking of love. So in order to have peace and order, you must love. Could you imagine as they pushed the Cabbage Patch doll across the table, if it was actually a room of people that loved one another? Like, listen, you take it. No, no, you take it. I mean, this is your daughter's first Christmas. My goodness, this is going to mean far more to her than you. No, no. Please, you. <laughs> like, can you imagine? Like, if that happened, I'd have been like, oh, no, someone has a weapon. You know, like, like what's going on? But... If you truly love others, peace and order, it functions naturally. 
And so Paul is talking about order in the church and, and he's coming off, he's talking about order in the church after he's coming off of a love chapter where he's saying, listen, God is love and if you're going to represent God, then there must be order. If you wanna reach people for the sake of God, if you want the, the prophetic, if you want the truth to be spoken, if you want the preaching to be heard, then love others enough to not question your spouse in public. And so we have this tension of truth in love. Here at Centerway, we have a, a because and therefore, which states this, because he first loved us, we value love first. Therefore, we say, come as you are and welcome people to belong before they believe. Because we truly love people, we will speak the truth in love. We don't apologize for the truth, but we speak it in love because we love people, because none of us are perfect, because at the end of the day, we're all as jacked up as the person next to us. And so as a result, we speak the truth in love. You see, as humans, we are bent towards our definition and our preference regarding the truth. It's why so many conclude that the truth is relative. So I want to resolve that just for a second. When subjected to humanity and our fallen nature, I agree. I agree. Truth is relative. If we are defining truth, then it is relative. Because my truth is different than your truth concerning any specific topic. But if truth is something external, if truth is something constant, if in fact truth is a person, if truth is Jesus Christ and is the standard of truth, then it's not up for grabs. If he's the defining fact around what truth is, and the one who is truth is also love. Isn't that interesting? That in literally chapter 13, Paul says Jesus is love, that God is love, and now God is is truth. You see, if God is both truth and love, which he embodied when he lived the life that you and I couldn't, and he died the death that we deserve, he embodied love for us before or if ever we deserved it, which by the way, the only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. And so it's God who who loves us while we are his enemy, and in the midst of it is truth, yet so patient and grace-filled as we violate that truth, as we sin, as we enter into wrongdoing, into the wickedness of our own heart, into our own preferences time and time again. God extends grace and grace. Why? Because he loves us, and yet he is truth. If God embodies both truth and love, as we are transformed by his truth and love, that spillover impacts everyone we come in contact with. It's, it's a required proximity thing because left to yourself, you will always default to your opinion and your definition of truth. And in the midst of it, you will bring division and chaos. 
You'll stand up for that which you believe, whether it's politics, sports, the weather, you name it. You could pick a fight with anybody on any given day, guaranteed, right? Even people that somewhat agree still disagree, right? You can have people that are fans of the same sporting teams that think one pitcher's amazing and the other one is incredible, you know? And so there's division amongst agreement. Why? Because we're defining. When left to ourselves to define, it leads to division and chaos. Unless we're transformed by the truth and love that only comes from God, then we can look at people and see beyond the differences that we have and extend grace and mercy. We can forgive and not hold wrongdoings. Why? How is it possible that you can forgive someone from such egregious things? It's because you were forgiven from such egregious things, right? If you don't understand the own, your own depravity of your heart, then you'll never be able to understand how to extend grace and mercy to someone else. You have to realize how wicked you are and how God loved you in spite of your wickedness, that it begins to transform the very core of who you are. So then as a result, you can be silent instead of speaking. You can love first. You can allow someone to belong before they believe. You can speak the truth because ultimately it's the truth that will set them free, but the truth must be spoken in love, right? And so we're talking about an opportunity to actually live on mission if we've truly been transformed by the truth of the gospel. It requires something from us this morning. The text does, especially as we come into Mother's Day. We're interacting with family members that maybe we have nothing but frustration for. And yet here we are, we're gonna, we're gonna represent God. For those of us that proclaim to be Christ followers, we're gonna represent God in the midst of family conflict. We can be peacemakers. According to this text, we can be peacemakers, not because you're going to conjure it up, not because you're going to bite your tongue, but because you realize that God loved you. And so you can say, I can be patient with this person because God has been so patient with me. So I want to ask you a question as we leave this place this morning for you to consider and contemplate. The question is this, where in my life is God asking me to be a peacemaker? Where in your life is God asking you to be a peacemaker? For some of you this morning, the answer is in your own life. Say, so listen, my, my life is not peaceful. I'm just, I'm grasping for something all the time. I'm trying to get ahead and I'm always failing. And so for some of you, the application is to say, I'm done living my life for myself and I want Jesus to be the Lord and leader of my life. If that's you this morning, it's as simple as praying a prayer in the quietness of your mind. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner, but you died for my sins. Would you come and be the Lord and leader of my life? Would you forgive me? I'd love to have a conversation with you after if you choose to pray that prayer, but there are others of us still in the room that are, have already prayed that prayer, and we want Jesus to bring order to the chaos of our lives. Whether it's being able to extend grace and mercy to a family member, some of you need to be peacemakers in your marriage. Some of you need to be peacemakers with your children. Peacemakers with your coworkers, 
classmates. If it's left up to your ability, you're going to get exhausted. You'll probably be taken advantage of. But if it's not about you, if it comes from something inside, something from a transformation of proximity to Christ, then the spillover of love is peace and order. They would find you a a peacemaker. I don't know what the answer is specifically for each and every person in this room, but I know that the text requires something from each and every one of us, that we can't just come into this place and have a church service and leave living the same way. So I want to challenge you this morning to consider what the implications are, what it looks like to be a peacemaker, to live on mission. Maybe it means you need to make a commitment to increase your proximity to Christ Somewhere along the way, your spirituality has become more about church attendance and less about an encounter with the living God. So as a result, you're trying to pull from a place that's empty. I don't know what it is, but I know it requires something. So I ask you just to bow your heads, and if you'd like, you can close your eyes or you can keep them open. As the band comes forward, they're going to begin to play because we we just want to respond to the word this morning. We want to create an environment where we can have a response to the God of truth and love. So with your head bowed, contemplate the implications. Consider them this morning. What is it that God's asking you to do in your marriage, with your coworker, with your classmate? Maybe it's just marking down, I'm going to sign up for devotions because I need to increase the time that I spend in proximity to Christ. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We pray that as we celebrate mothers, as we consider those that are maybe in the midst of grief, Lord, that even something like a holiday wouldn't be about us, but it would be about you. We're thankful that you are a peacemaker. God, that you came into the chaos of the world and you brought order. So this morning we pray that you would come into the chaos of our lives and bring order. We surrender to you. We respond to you this morning.